All across America and around the world, this is Veterans Radio. This is Veterans Radio. All right. Hello, everyone. My name is Dr. Eric Fretz, and I'll be your host for this excellent edition of Veterans Radio. We have a topic today that's near and dear to my heart, and that is veterans in post-secondary and undergraduate and graduate education. And I have some fantastic guests lined up here today who are deeply immersed in that field. Um, I'll go ahead and dive right in to introduce them. Uh, First is Ryan Pavel. He is a CEO of the Warrior Scholar Program and a longtime friend of mine. He's a graduate of the University of Michigan and the University of Virginia School of Law and a veteran of service in the United States Marine Corps. So welcome, Ryan. Um, We also have R.J. Jenkins, who's a curriculum designer at Columbia University Center for Veteran Transition and Integration. He's a graduate of both Columbia University and the University of Cambridge. And we also have Dr. Linda Udo, uh, Associate Director of Research and Evaluation at the Daniello Institute for Veterans and Military Families at Syracuse University. And uh, she's a graduate of Syracuse University School of Education, both for the master's and Ph.D. So um, it's really a pleasure to have you all here today and talk about something I know is dear and dear to all our hearts, which veterans in in higher education. And um, I thought maybe we could just start by letting you all just introduce yourself very briefly and add anything that I didn't cover um, and just briefly um, talk about uh, how you got interested in veterans in higher education. Yeah, thank you so much for, uh, thank you so much for having us, uh, uh, Eric. This is, uh, it's a pleasure to be here. It's interesting when I usually, when I describe a bit about WSP and my own background, um, there are very few people that have, have known me throughout the entire arc of that. But I think you are one of the very few people that knew me, <laughs> Day one. um, when I, from, from when I was on terminal leave, um, to, to today. So, you know, you can, you can attest to this or you can say whether or not what I'm speaking is totally, uh, made up or whether it's accurate. So, um, but yeah, I mean, I, uh, you know, this, this concept of, of helping veterans with, with student veteran success, a very long story short for me is I did not anticipate getting into this line of work, um, but I came to it very organically when I, you know, when I was able to um, fortunately find my way to University of Michigan after, after um, separating from the Marine Corps, served five years as an enlisted Marine. And um, I've been involved in this work now for the past 12 years, and um, I have learned a lot along the way. And one of the things that I've learned is to surround myself with people such as, you know, yourself, Eric, and also, you know, Linda and RJ, right? People that are immersed in, in this area as well, that are doing, approaching it from different perspectives, right? All trying to think about how do we support this population and that nobody has all the answers, but collectively, right? If we put our heads together, um, we can look at the research and we can think about what are the actual strategies to help veterans excel post-service. Yeah, excellent. And I'm I'm hoping folks will, as we over time on this interview, we'll get more familiar with Warrior Scholar. And, you know, obviously folks who are listening should definitely Google it. It is a premier program in the U.S. in terms of helping students get to higher ed. Um, And Linda? Oh, hi. Hi, Eric. Thank you for having me again. I, I echo everything Ryan says. We're better together, all of us. Um, I started with the IVMF about five and a half years ago and was really drawn to the student veteran because I'm military connected myself, but also um, because along with my degree from the School of Education, I ran a newsroom for about 10 years. I'm all about the stories, right? So our student veterans have this amazing, these amazing stories, and they come to campus with the resilience, as we know, resiliency and passion to be there. And so finding ways through our research to help the student veteran to be successful is really uh, a passion of mine. It's become really a passion. And we again, the research just shows that they have very unique challenges and barriers, but also they bring so much to the college campus. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I've become focused on not only helping them, but also bridging that gap between the student veteran and the civilian student, because they can really um, benefit each other. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. And RJ? 
Yeah, it's it's awesome to be here. Um, and and I just the the three of us we sort of nerd out these days about once a month together. So it's really nice to do that, Eric, with you as well um, to talk about this incredible population. Um, I've been working with veteran students for about 15 years, and the thing that has consistently drawn me to this population and and keeps me really motivated and passionate about working with these students is um, I've never worked with a group of students who so consistently think that maybe college isn't for them, who then go on to crush college, yes. right? Like it, it just consistently happens this way. I I have to do all this work and enjoy doing the work, but of, of helping them sort of um, believe that, that this is for them, uh, that they can excel, not just survive, but excel. And then they go on to, to perform in, at this extraordinary level at all um, kinds of institutions. Uh, and, it, and that's exciting. So I, I think um, for me, that's what really motivates the work. Uh, and at the Columbia Center for Veteran Transition, I'm really focused on um, on helping, you know, Ryan and I have a lot of sort of synergy between our work. I build curriculum that helps students succeed in the college classroom because we know that they can. And as soon as they know that they can. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I totally agree. You know, Ryan and I years ago worked on a, a curriculum to help that we would do a sort of a vet success class at Michigan, which is fantastic. And I still remember one of the very first times we were watching just a very, that's probably the second time that Warrior Scholar had run. And I never forget this brilliant young lady at, at uh, she was at the Yale cohort and she was from some somewhere in the U.S. And, and I just watched her over the course of a day, you know, interacting at such a high level and offering these brilliant commentaries. And she had read so deeply into the works. And I thought, I wish all of my students at Michigan were like this. I mean, I can only get about 10% of them to perform at this incredible level. And she just, all she could say, oh, I could, I could never go to Michigan. It's too hard. Oh, no, I, I don't belong there. I was like, get in the car. I'm going to drive <laughs> you there right now. So, yeah, for sure. Okay, well, sir, thanks for um, sort of uh, deepening that understanding for our our, um, our listeners of the different programs. I know, yeah, for example, I do Columbia. I hope you'll talk a little more about Columbia. Columbia has a huge veteran population and is you know, an incredible sort of a veteran-friendly machine in a way. Um, and so we can talk a little more about that later, I'm sure. Um, I'd like to lead off now by just helping our listeners understand a little bit more about the post-secondary sort of college undergraduate population of veterans. And I think one of the ways it's helpful that people often don't realize, you know, veterans are coming back to campus after a minimum of one enlistment. So they're at least four years older than the typical high school graduate at a minimum. Many of them have done five or six years or they've done a year or two after separating, trying to figure out their life finally come back around to college. And of course, if any of our listeners aren't familiar, since the start of about the 2000s, we've had uh, the uh, GI Bill that was put in place in you know, 2008 and been expanded to several times. And this GI Bill, even better than the previous GI Bill, it, it literally is essentially a, a backpack with a degree in it. You know, they hand you the backpack and they say, here you go. This is like a voucher that you can exchange for a bachelor's degree anywhere. You know, Harvard, Yale, Michigan, wherever, Syracuse, <laughs> um, Columbia. And that's amazing. That's that's one of the best educational benefits that's ever been given out. And so now you have all these students who are coming back to um, college. And just like a lot of the non-traditional students it, without a veteran background, there's a real common problem where I think um, I was looking, I think one of the articles that you said at one point, Linda, was like over 60% are, are first generation, meaning that they just don't have any of that family guidance. Everything's new. They don't really understand anything 
anything about the process, even just the application, it just seems overwhelming. The SAT and it's all just, what do I do? And then when they uh, typically, they don't live on campus, they don't want to live in a dorm because they're not 19, so they're commuting. A lot of times there will be a lack of uh, good financial guidance or understanding. There's a lot of issues with finances and, um, you know, coming in with maybe some debt or some maladaptive kind of living paycheck to paycheck that sometimes the military encourages. They tend to be older. Oftentimes they're married and have children and add that to the commuting. Sometimes they have to have or have a job they can't quit or feel they can't quit. Although ideally the GI Bill stipend is supposed to be enough. And if you like eating Raymond, it can be. Oftentimes, as we mentioned already, they have low aspirations and where they're not shooting high enough. And then a whole host of transition issues where, you know, from where they're at to the to the college campus, the culture is different. And um, so there's, there's that, I think, for any non-traditional because you're a little older. But then the military imposes a whole bunch of them that we kind of lump under a thing called degreening where it's very common for a, you know, a student to come in and look at the professor and think, well, that's like my colonel. And I don't want to talk to the colonel because anytime the colonel's talking to you, it's usually a bad thing, right? So I don't want to do that. So the very, you know, the, the power person who very much wants to engage with you and the whole power of the undergraduate is doing so, the military folks have been trained to avoid. And a couple other unique ones, maybe there's some unique military uh, health stressors and things like that. And and then the last thing I'd mention is there seems to be unique to military vets. The military instills a sort of a knock it out, get it done, move along, right? So I'm, I'm, going, to, I'm going to infantry school. Great. I'm going to grind through infantry school. And if I can get through infantry school as fast as I can and get that checkbox, get that code, I can get to my unit and I can get done and do stuff, do stuff, do stuff, go, go, go. So a lot of times they'll roll into college and they'll just be like, what's the quickest way out of here? I'm going to take stuff over the summer. I'm going to jam through this. I'm going to get my degree and I'm just going to take off into the world. And they're missing the opportunity of all the rich depth that a campus offers. So having kind of laid out those characteristics, um, and I see a lot of shaking heads, I'd love to hear more thoughts from you, anecdotes to sort of back up or amplify those, things that you think are more important, things I've forgotten, so we can just get a baseline down of what this veteran population looks like on campus. Well, we have about, what, seven, seven to eight hours to unpack all of that? Is that, <laughs> exactly. is that right? Um, yeah, I mean, because that, you know, that, that, that in and of itself, right? I mean, that introduction of what you teed up there is, um, you know, is, is enormous. I just, uh, one of the things that really resonated with me is I wanted to share a bit more about anecdotally, right, from my experience, um, you know, what that process was like. And then, you know, you cited some of the, you know, the topics that, you know, Linda's been involved with that research really heavily. And so I think that it'd be really helpful to hear, you know, some of that on the research side, what that has looked like. But, you know, for me, right, the, I got out in 2010 and that that was um, one year after the post on the GI Bill was actually implemented, right? So had I gotten out, say, five years before, I would have been on the Montgomery GI Bill, and I would have been thinking quite differently, right? I mean, the, the benefits were wildly different, uh, huge increase in, in accessibility and in opportunity. And so, you know, one of the parts of, of my um, my transition story that I don't share about a lot is, you know, I, I was originally planning on um, going to um, AMU, right, American Military University, right? And I think, you know, even as, as my finger was hovering over the submit application button, they accepted me, right, before I could even click submit, right? I mean, that's that's sort of the, you know, the, the style that, because this is the thing which is known. And um, this was while I was on deployment, right? And I was thinking about next steps. I had some, you know, notion that I wanted to go to school. I'm not a first generation student. Um, so it was always a, um, it was always, college was very much a part of my my upbringing. And so I knew that I was going to. And there are many reasons um, why I enlisted in the Marine Corps, but I knew I needed something to kick me into high gear and, and, and that did it. But I always knew I was going to go to school. But even though I wasn't a first generation student, right? My mom is a master's degree. My father's a, an MD. I still had a bunch of questions about sort of what comes next. And so where did I go to, right? The, the school that I had heard of, right? Which was AMU, right? And so one of the things that happened with the post-911 GI Bill and, you know, AMU is one of many schools that um, on, the, on the for-profit 
outside, right, and that had the resources to be able to really heavily and aggressively market and say, okay, the post on the GI Bill is here, okay. right? Use tuition assistance to come to us, right? You don't even have to tap into your post on the GI Bill. And then there's all these opportunities for you to use your post on the GI Bill. And so the marketing, right, was was really immense. And in particular, in those early years of the post Northern and GI Bill, I saw that um, quite frequently. And you think about a lot of the other major for-profit players. One of the big lessons for me over the past 12 years in evolving my thinking is that it's not it's not necessarily a binary, right? It's not sorting into for-profit, bad, not-for-profit, good. Far from it. So evaluating those things, right, being an informed consumer of higher education requires you to be able to say, okay, this institution, right, that's, that's heavily marketing toward me is the ones that I've heard of. Let's evaluate those options and figure out if that's the right fit for me. And also, what are the ones that I'm not necessarily hearing about? You know, where, what kind of search criteria do I need to put into place? Um, and one of my uh, buddies that I was deployed with, uh, he was the other Arabic translator. And we worked 12-hour shifts. Um, I was night shift. He was day shift. And so um, we would have like a kind of a crossover time in the half an hour when we were sh- doing shift change every day. And he was looking to apply to University of Michigan. That was the first time that I had ever really considered Michigan. And that led me to run through a Google search. And this is kind of a, a story that I've told often, but I, you know, literally Googled um, Arabic veteran in college and applied to the school schools that came up, right? Michigan was, you know, it it fit those criteria. They have a really strong Arabic program. It was very organic in the sense of I had a a loose plan in place. Okay, I guess I'll do AMU, right? That's that's the one that I've heard of, right? That's the one that's top of mind. But no, okay, somebody's telling me there's another option out there. Let me do at least like a really, really basic search to figure out what I should be applying to. And then there's, you know, a a long story that flows from that. But I think keying in on that point of the seismic shift in opportunity that the post on 11G bill and the ensuing updates, right? Because it's not just the post, it's the, it's the, the forever GI bill, it's VRNE, right? Formerly referred to as Voc Rehab. It's scholarships that four-year institutions are doing, right? Increasingly, so many four-year institutions are saying, look, don't even spend your GI bill here, right? We, we've, we've got you, right? We'll pay for your, we'll pay for your degree. Yeah. That's, you know, every year there's more and more schools that are in Yellow that vein. Program, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So I think that there's something that's really telling about that. Um, and I still now, right in 2022, when I talk to students, there are still many people that are in a position like I was, right? Like, okay, well, I guess I'll apply. I want to go to school. I'll go to the place that I've heard of. I've heard of a couple places. So I'll put it in an application and I'll go there, right? We, we have not made, uh, I'll just say across the board at a, at a macro level, we have not made nearly enough progress in helping people make those informed decisions of, of, of higher ed at the right stage at that pivotal time before they've spent benefits, before they've given the opportunity cost of their time. Help them understand um, the power of the magic lightning bolt that they have. Yeah. Yeah. And and again, I would say that like for me, again, college was a foregone conclusion. So to your point, you know, Eric, I mean, the, the over half, over 50%, right? 60% plus of, of, of veterans are first gen students. So yeah, I mean, I would, I, you know, you, you said it again, Linda, I think um, Linda certainly knows the research on, on that side. Awesome. Thanks very much. So Linda or RJ, do you want to talk about any of the points that we brought up or anything you think could uh, sort of uh, deepen the, the sort of the background we're laying down for the uh, audience to understand the population of veterans in the higher ed? Um, yes, Eric. Thank you. As you said, 62% are first-generation students. I myself um, am a first-generation student, so I brought, but I was a traditional first-generation student. So Eric, as you said, right? So the student veterans, they come with layers of unique challenges and barriers. They also come with so much, you know, to enrich the college campus. But if I could say just a few stats, we have 15% of student veterans are the traditional age of college students. Um, Most student veterans are ages 24 to 40. 47% of student veterans have children. 47, a little over 47% of student veterans are married. 
Um, 75% of our student veterans are attending school full time and veterans are enrolling in higher education to increase their career opportunities and develop new skills and learn to apply those military skills in civilian life. Uh, So those are just some of the, to lay the groundwork of the numbers out there. Also, um, I will tell you at Syracuse University, over 90%, I'm told, of our student veterans come from community colleges. So that's the pathway they're taking. Mm-hmm. Um, to your point, Eric, because they're non-traditional, they predominantly, you know, they started a community college. Also, I think, you know, and, and we've talked about this, Ryan and RJ, there's that confidence piece that um, I hope we get into a little more. To attend a community college, they believe that that is attainable, right? It also is a fle- flexible uh, because it fits well with their uh, lives at the time. And so then going from that community college path into a residential college, um, it's overwhelming. Um, I know myself as a first generation, my dad served as a veteran. I had, I didn't even know, I had nowhere to turn. And they didn't have the programs in place then that they do now. And I know we're going to get into that a little more uh, later on um, in the podcast. But those programs, putting those programs in place to help our student veterans uh, navigate the college experience, the and having that support system um, mm-hmm. is really is pivotal is pivotal to their success, and yep. it, it's showing in our numbers as well. Yeah, I remember that one of my favorite things at Michigan is to take that first term veteran who has done a year or two at Washington Community College, which is right nearby, and they've come in and they've gotten four point um, And of course, because they're getting into Michigan, they're strong students, and Washington is a great college. But they're like, oh, I four point oh, and I got it. And you and you know, we just put the hand on the shoulder and be like, okay, it's it's September. You really need to run now because it's Michigan and the speed of the river has changed. And if you don't start swimming really hard right now, if you swim the same speed that you swam at WCC, you right. are going to get swept away. And by, and they usually kind of look at you a little funny. And then by about October, they're like, oh, I understand now. <laughs> so, right. Yeah. It, exactly. Exactly. Um, and I also think to that point, Eric, that community college also helps build that confidence a bit, sure. right? Because many of our uh, first-generation student veterans coming from rural areas uh, may not have that foundation yeah. of knowledge yeah. and support to, um, entering into collegiate study. So community college, it, it builds, I'm not saying that's the preferred path, but I'm saying it does help yeah. um, build that confidence in making that leap to your point. Yeah, it's also, we're talking in the next section, we're talking about the strategies and it actually going to community college is super smart because it allows them to knock out some of their core things that are often very difficult, the way they're taught at higher um, institutions. They're, they're taught much more per, in, in person. They're taught much smaller sections at a community college um, where, you know, that it's, uh, it's a, just a friendlier way to learn in some cases than the really massive classes you'll find at some of the big institutions. And it saves some money too. Oftentimes they they don't even use the GI Bill at the community college. Um, RJ, you haven't had a chance to chime in. We'd love to hear a little bit from you. Yeah. I mean, I just, it's, it's interesting. I want to add a layer. Linda talks about the layers, right? I think an additional layer that there is here and it's prevalent, right? Is that we know, and, and I don't have a percentage to give, but we know that one of the many reasons that students go to the military is because their first academic experience wasn't necessarily completely fulfilling for them, right? <laughs> Ran into the wall. <laughs> whether that's the high school classroom, whether that's their first attempt at college. I have a really good um, friend, former student David Nair, tells a story about living in Sedalia, Missouri, going to Missouri State, 
um, quickly earning a 0.4 GPA in his first semester and kindly being asked to leave, right? Um, and where did he go? He went straight to the US Marine Corps. Now, here's the thing about that. He had a very positive experience as a weather forecaster in the Marine Corps. But when it was time for him to do the next thing, the last thing he had to say about himself academically was that he earned a point, a point for GPA. And he just immediately assumed that that was a deal breaker for basically everybody. And of course, what we know is that that's not the case. But to Ryan's point, are we doing a good enough job communicating to folks that they haven't undone, they haven't undone themselves or permanently marked themselves? I mean, we talk about this sort of idea of the broken veteran. Unfortunately, that idea is often coming from the veteran, him or herself, and then being sort of reinforced by institutions or sure. reinforced by public narrative. But of course, there's absolutely nothing, it turned out, um, about the point for GPA that, that disqualified him from, um, from coming to Columbia University. And yeah. so, and, but, he, but he, he would have never believed that had he not sat down with somebody. So I think you know, one of the things that's really important for us is that this, so many of us are involved in trying to optimize students' academic performance in the classroom, but, but that admissions moment is so, so important, right? Um, there's a kind of evangelism that has to take place mm -hmm. at that moment that then sets everything in motion. And, and I just think it's, it's now not everyone, you know, has that, but I think, but I think a lot of people do because then once they do get admitted, right, if they're able to sort of get over that barrier, if they're able to, you know, someone has a positive mindset intervention tell, to, to them, you know, college is for you, then what do we do? Then we plop them right down into the very environment where they had that first experience. Mm -hmm. um, so there's just a, you know, there's just a lot of, there's a lot of, um, soft skills and important conversations that need to take place. And that's why I think seeing this move, I think in the last five to 10 years toward a more holistic approach, not just to advising, but to admissions mm -hmm. for this population has been really important and positive. Yeah. Yeah. I would say we, we've definitely seen similar stuff at, at Michigan. We do, we get a lot of, a lot of veterans in through the transfer portal. It's very common. We have a, you know, that we have a really good partnership with the community college that's right next door. So we kind of have a, basically a pipeline that is bringing in five to 10 veterans, you know, um, which is a good number for us um, pretty much every term. So this has been very interesting. Okay. So as we, as we wrap, we get to wrap up this section, just want to emphasize, we've talked about a number of things that face non-traditional students and then a couple that were unique to the, to the military student, um, obviously some unique stressors and perhaps, perhaps mental health issues that we can talk about that in the next section. Um, some of the maladaptive focus that sometimes uh, um, military students have in terms of thinking of it as a credential or trying to get through things very quickly. And then something we, sort of collectively called degreening, which is that there's all those habits that you learn in the military. Um, everything from, again, thinking of your uh, professor as your colonel to, um, you know, being fairly aggressive or gross with your joking or being fairly um, uh, crass in, in sort of your political discussion, all sorts of things that, that are, you know, common in the military that maybe don't serve as well on the um, campus. And I think, you know, there's all sorts of opportunities for mentors and programs to uh, help veterans, you know, have a new way of thinking about it. As RJ mentioned, Show them, show them these paths or the paths that are right there, but they don't see them. And until you pull that curtain back and say, you can walk right through there. Everyone does. Oh, okay. <laughs> so that'd be great. Um, all right. So that, let's, uh, we'll go ahead and wrap up this section. We'll be back shortly to talk a little bit more in our next section. We're going to talk about some of the common strategies that veterans use and some of the
the mistakes that they might make, as well as a whole host of interesting programs that our guests know about. And we'll talk a little bit about any sort of systemic or um, local changes that we think might be helpful in terms of benefiting veterans. So we'll be back shortly. The Medal of Honor is the highest award for valor in combat given a member of the Armed Forces of the United States. There have been over 3,400 recipients of the nation's highest award. This is one of them. Private Dale Hansen killed 12 Japanese soldiers in a one-man attack on their positions. Details after this. If you have a VA claim denied by the Board of Veterans' Appeals, contact Legal Help for Veterans at 1-800-693-4800. They're experts in handling cases before the U.S. Court of Appeals for Veterans' Claims. Their number again, 1-800-693-4800. Hansen unhesitatingly took the initiative during a critical stage of the action and armed with a rocket launcher, crawled to an exposed position where he attacked and destroyed a strategically located hostile pillbox. With his weapon subsequently destroyed by enemy fire, he seized a rifle and continued his one-man assault. Reaching the crest of a ridge, he opened fire on six Japanese and killed four before his rifle jammed. Attacked by the two remaining Japanese, he beat them off with the butt of his rifle and then climbed back to cover. Returning with another weapon and supply of grenades, he fearlessly advanced and destroyed a strong mortar position and annihilated eight more of the enemy. The Medal of Honor series is a production of Veterans Radio. Military veterans touch everyone's life. I'm guessing right now you're thinking of a veteran, a close friend, relative. Maybe it's you. Even the toughest of us sometimes need help but don't know where to turn for support. You don't need special training to help a veteran in your life. We can all help someone going through a difficult time. Learn how you can be there for veterans. Visit VeteransCrisisLine.net. VeteransCrisisLine.net. A message from the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs. All across America and around the world, this is Veterans Radio. This is Veterans Radio. All right. Welcome back, everyone. I'm your host, Dr. Eric Fretz, again, when we're back for the second half of our program on veterans and higher education with my guests, Ryan Pavel, R.J. Jenkins, and Dr. Linda Udo. We just finished up talking about all the interesting characteristics of veterans and, not, and, and as part of a larger non-traditional cohort in, in second, post-secondary education. And we had been talking about different strategies and uh, things that uh, students veteran students typically use. So um, I'm just going to briefly talk a little bit about some of the strategies that uh, I've seen uh, the students uh, using at Michigan, and then we'll have our guests chime in a little bit more on that. Also talk a little bit about some common mistakes. So if you're a veteran out there thinking of coming to college using the GI Bill, these are some things that we'd want you to understand. Um, and then uh, um, Linda is going to talk a little bit about the contributions that uh, that veterans make to the campus because I think that's often overlooked, and the veterans really do, as a group, bring some fantastic skills and and uh, and, and abilities to the campus that are, are oftentimes overlooked. So we see oftentimes with the strategies that the um, the students will oftentimes use. It's very well known out on the deck plate, shall we say? Hey, go to community college first, and you know, get a couple of years in and get your basics done, and get it done cheaper, and it'll also help you, you know, get get some four O on there. And that'll help you get into a better school. I think that's a very solid uh, technique that really kind of surprised me the first time I realized that so many students were doing it. They also really think carefully, a lot of them do, about saving their GI Bill because they understand the value of that. And it's interesting to meet veterans who are at Michigan who are saying, no, I'm I'm living lean and I'm hustling and I'm doing an extra job and I'm applying for grants because what I really want to use my GI Bill for is medical school or law school, um, which financially is very savvy and very smart. Um, 
Then oftentimes, too, there are cases, though, where they'll they'll be, like, trying to hurry through or they'll say, well, I really have to take full-time classes for the entire summer because I need to keep my full-time stipend to make my rent money, which is interesting because maybe the summer classes really aren't beneficial for them. So there's a whole host of things there that are all tied together with the GI Bill. Um, I just wondered if any of you had other thoughts about uh, strategies that you see veterans using as they come through your programs or that you've worked with. Yeah, again, we have about seven or eight hours, right, to <laughs> so talk about strategies. I, I, ask, and, I ask the simple questions. What can I do? <laughs> yeah, right. Just to, yeah, the yeah, real real narrow there. I mean, I I have many thoughts. I mean, I I, I would say that you know, RJ made a good point early on that um, that that CVTI, you know, the Columbia, the Center for Veterans Transition Integration and, and Warrior Scholar Project have worked closely to be able to talk about this. So I always learn whenever I hear RJ talk about that. So I you know, RJ, I I I, I would throw to you to kick that off, and then um, I'll I'll kind of add some color from from our conversations over the years. I mean, I, I'd say two, two things. I'd say three things, and I'll, I'll make it as quick as possible. Um, the two things I say to the, to the vets are right off the gate, right off the bat, we need to have a conversation about the culture of asking for help on campus and how that culture is different than perhaps they've been socialized to ask for help in other settings, yes. but particularly in the military, right? Yes. Um, and, and all I say is in college, right, in these academic settings, <clears throat> um, in higher education, Asking for help is what good students do early, often, all the time. And if you look at what a college education looks like, actually forms of help are, 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 are there all the time. Even, even lecture, which doesn't feel like help, lecture is just organized, systematic help for students, right? So if you're going to lecture, you're receiving help, understanding the material process and the information. So this idea that somehow asking for help is a sign of weakness, an expression of brokenness, an admission that they're not uh, good enough or smart enough, it's really, really important for us as institutions, as higher education professionals, as nonprofits, whoever, to, to help students reimagine the technology of asking for help academically and for other reasons as well. The second thing I say to them is they need to build a team right away. Um, they need to build a team. They need to connect with their academic advisor. They need to connect with their school certifying official, whoever's working in their veteran resource office, their peers, their faculty members, right? Going to office hours is not an admission of brokenness. Also, that's about team building. And the thing is, is that our military connected students, transitioning service members, veterans, they know all about working in teams, right? They've done, they've done that before. And in this new context, they need to do it again. The last thing I would say for my higher education professional colleagues that we can do a better job of is one of the biggest insecurities I see students come in with is that the skills that they had in the military don't transfer to college. I was a sniper. I was a weather forecaster. I was a lion cook. I, 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 I disengaged bombs. I did work on tanks. How could that thing possibly prepare me for college algebra? How could that thing possibly prepare me for ancient Chinese history? And what I say to them and what I encourage my colleagues to say is every single student who has ever served in the military learned one primary skill, and that is to how to become good at things you weren't already good at. Every veteran I know knows how to get good at things they weren't already good at. And that's all college is, right? That's all college algebra is. That's all ancient Chinese history is. It's becoming fluent in something that you weren't already fluent in. And not only do my vets know how to do that, they're the best at that, right? They've already proven in their prior context that they know how. So I think when they hear that from us, 
that actually their experience as a line cook, you know, or their experience working on aircraft, that that thing does translate. I think it it, it changes their mindset mm-hmm. um, and they really proceed again with a different level of confidence once they've been told that they're not actually out of place and that the core thing that we're all doing in higher education is the thing they already know how to do. Yeah, those are those are fantastic points. Those are really great. Yeah, and, it, and it, the help seeking and the whole standard of not letting down the team to just throw. And I love. I want to hear all your anecdotes. But this one was really powerful for me at Michigan. I, I was asked what time to meet with a young Marine, and he was failing out. He was doing a, a you know a really challenging kinesiology degree and wanted to become a physical therapist. He uh, was failing his classes. This was this was uh, th- three years in, and I said, you know, um, Joe, let's say, call him Joe. Said, Joe, what's going on? Oh, well, you know, I just don't have time. I said, well, you, what do you mean you don't have time? Well, the whole weekend, I've got to go, you know, i got to go to the, my job on Friday night, and, I, and there was this there till late, and I closed the bar. And he had a job as a bar back at a local club over the summer. And uh, and then, of course, Saturday night, you know, I'm, I'm up till late, till Sunday morning, and then the weekend's gone. And I just said, Joe... That was supposed to be a summertime part-time job for you. You were supposed to quit that in August. It's the middle of October. What are you doing? You don't need this money. He, she says to me, Marine to the end. He's like, well, I, I couldn't let down the team. If I, you know, if I quit, you know, what are they going to do? I'm like, they're going to hire someone else. <laughs> like, come on. I had to say to him, what about all of the people that you're going to help in the future that you're going to let down if you don't graduate? And he paused for a second and that reframing kind of helped him. But it was just, it was just, it, it just didn't enter his mind. He was constitutionally unable to quit this part-time job because of his military programming and it was failing. I just, it was mind blowing. I thought, wow, the, the military experience would be so powerful for people. It just, they didn't even realize how it's affected them. So anyway, um, other thoughts from folks? If I may, Eric, so on the heels of all of this, so I had the opportunity to teach a course to a cohort of sergeants major this this year and all about that help-seeking behavior. So I would say in all of my, you know, it was asynchronous as well as synchronous. I would say in all of my announcements, please reach out for help. Please reach out for help. But halfway through, like there was crickets, dead silence, right? I would hold um, my office hours virtually. Nobody was attending. So I revisited that and started saying, okay, we're going to start meeting at this time on these times. And we worked in teams and people would come and I'd say, any questions, crickets. And then I started saying, okay, extra points for questions. So then all of a sudden, all of the questions came. And to your point, RJ, reiterating, you ask every and any question, and I will give extra points for extra questions. So it, um, please reach out for help. Help is the key to this. You've got this. And I really try to align, help them to align what they already know with the new skills that they're learning. And I'm like, you guys know this, you've done this. So that constant reinforcement, right? So RJ, you said it. It's in, it is important to let the student veteran know what how they need and what they need to be able to succeed. But on the flip side of that, it is imperative that we educate our faculty in higher ed to help them understand how the student veteran can be successful. Mm-hmm. So that 
to me is um, and some of the different challenges they're facing. Yeah. Right. I know there are yeah. there are these military cultural competency programs that are received with different levels of success uh, in different locations. But there's one, the Green Zone, is pretty well known, and there's some others. It's a, it's quite a challenge actually to you know, to really develop military competency. One must serve in the military, <laughs> so it's a it's a hard thing to do in just a class. So I think we've really hit this common mistake of of, of uh, the help seeking, and that's great. Um, and I think there's a couple other common mistakes that I'd want to sort of any of the vets that are listening would want to warn them about, you know, don't undershoot, you know, very back right at the beginning of the program, we talked about this, this undershooting, this believing that you're not good enough. So many of the veterans in Michigan who are in fact, literally Marines who are aerospace engineers. And they'd be like, yeah, I applied to Michigan. You know, I didn't realize how, how big of a school this was and how challenging and how it was a top tier engineer. I didn't even, reg- I just, I just sort of I wanted to apply to five places. So I just applied here, not even thinking I would get in, you know? And so this idea of just intentionally saying, shoot high. Um, and then the, the other one I would warn is this tendency to focus on the degree as credential or as a qualification. Let me just get through this as if it's a, as if it's ranger school, right? Grind it out, grind it out and then get the heck out of here. Cause I got the tab. Right. And, and it's like, no, the undergrad education, this is you're on campus and you're you're marinating in this right and you have all these opportunities and clubs and internships and other special things that can really broaden you and show you other things you might want to do with your life so don't rush through don't don't grind through as fast as you can um so any thoughts you have on those what i would sort of consider you know common mistakes um any other ones that you see that you think we should sort of maybe put out there as little little signposts you know don't do this A theme that I think runs through all of this is sort of like, why are, why are we in this situation? So, I mean, if I can, if I can use that um, and, and kind of answer my own question um, and then come back to the specific question that you're asking there, there's a systemic failure in terms of how we're serving the vast majority of transitioning service members that are interested in, in pursuing higher education. I, you know, for a while I've, I've kind of minced words about this and while things are coming along it, there, it, w- right now, we're talking about the folks that are already at these institutions, right? The ones that are already thinking about, okay, right. I'm in community college, right. I want to transition to a four-year institution. Okay. I'm here, right. I'm kind of struggling. I need to quit this part. Like all of these things, right. And that's fantastic. We should be thinking about the common challenges that, that folks are facing. And I agree emphatically with the idea that we should be tapping into the skill sets that people have in service and finding ways to be able to bridge that into success in higher education and beyond, right? Higher education without connection to some sort of career ambitions is often misguided, right? Like you should be thinking about the longer term steps. Um, you know, one of the ways that I've talked about this is I am, you know, I, uh, there's no job I'd rather have in the world than, than, than leading Warrior Scholar Project. But I also acknowledge WSP shouldn't have to exist, like it, it, it actually, it actually shouldn't the, you know, the transition assistance program, when I went through in 2010, the two things that came out of it were, okay, you, you should apply for disability. It doesn't matter if you feel any, anything now, right. Apply for disability. And if you don't know where to go, apply to jobs at Home Depot because they're, they're favorable for hiring veterans. I, nothing about education, full stop, nothing. It's gotten better, right? It, it's definitely gotten better. I've, I've talked to many folks that are you know, running, running tap and the, the actual tap curriculum itself on the education track side is, is robust. But what happens is that how that gets filtered down to the individual service members that are transitioning, it's no longer a guarantee that that or not, not no longer. There's no guarantee that just because the curriculum itself at a high level, right, that the, the intent of it, um, there's no guarantee that that's actually going to be filtered down effectively. If you don't have commands that are really incentivizing people to take full advantage of TAP, if you don't have the right contractors that really understand how to be executing TAP and how to be teaching TAP, it's just not going to land. You know, I have, the, I have the privilege every year of talking to hundreds of students 
that are at various stages, about 50% active duty, 50% um, uh, veterans that go through Warrior Scholar Project, right? We run these academic boot camps. And I always do, every time I meet a new group of students, I do this kind of straw poll of, okay, who's, who's, who's had a recent experience with TAP? Keep your hand up if it was, you know, a useful experience for you in terms of, of preparing you for, for higher education, right? The number of people that, that think that they've received already the services, right? The, the mindsets necessary to be able to transition successfully in higher education is abysmal. Sometimes people have good experiences and to make sure that that's, that that's the case, right? It's not that it, when done properly, it can work really well. You get the mentorship services. You're thinking about, um, you know, evaluating your options and being an informed consumer of higher education. But that's not, that's not the lived experience of, of, of the vast majority of folks that I talk to. And so trying to solve for that, right? Community college, I agree again, emphatically that that is a vital thing. That is the right thing for many students. For myself, when I applied to Michigan on active duty, um, they rejected me, right? And then I, I called the number and said, hey, you know, like I would love to get more information about that. I have some other live applications. What can I do? And they said, well, you haven't proven that you can get A's. It's a, it's a really good point, right? I hadn't, right? And so I enrolled the next day in the local community college on base at Camp Lejeune, called back the admissions counselor, said, okay, right? I'm now I'm now I'm in class, right? And they conditionally admitted me as assuming I would get A's in those classes. Then I got admitted that same cycle to Michigan. That was a bizarre experience and the human contact there matters. But I, again, it was a foregone conclusion for me. I knew that I wanted to get higher education, right? I had to kind of independently find those things. And that is a really steep learning curve for a lot of people. The numbers are staggering, right? 200,000 leaving the service each year. There was a, a really fascinating military.com article um, last week that was talking about um, uh, Department of Labor pretty dramatically underestimated the number of people that would be transitioning out this year. They were off by like tens of thousands. And part of this is the lingering effects of COVID and people sort of extending service for a period of time. But recruitment um, for initial enlistments is, you know, is, is taking a huge hit this year, all kinds of issues. But the bottom line is that you have tens of thousands of people, right, that are that are leaving the service. It still is about that 200,000 number. And the best estimate that I know, right, Linda, correct me if I'm wrong, is about 115,000 people are starting higher education each year. So if we're talking about the, the hundreds or thousands of people that already are in the stage, the mindset of thinking, okay, I'm, I'm thinking about these schools, what can we do to support them? Yes, that matters, full stop. But we also need to think about the people that aren't even, that are way, um, the tens of thousands of people that are not there and reaching them is hard. It's really, really hard. Yeah. Um, it's a very crowded space. So I don't mean to paint a picture of doom and gloom. I just think it's really important to be able to talk about what can be done at scale to actually really reach those folks and say, hey, you have this skill bridge. This is, you know, you have the ability to be able to succeed. Here are the tools that are necessary. And that's where, you know, that's part of what WSP does, right? Is trying to be able to not just reach the people that are already on the path to success, that then we can enhance their success, but to also really aggressively scale our programs and our marketing and our modalities and all of these things, our networks, our, you know, all of these things that we're doing to be able to reach the people that aren't there. The most recent thing for us was we were really fortunate to be included in the VA's blast to 11 million people last year and our applications doubled um, uh, more or less overnight. Um, which was, which was amazing, right? Because it's, it's visibility for people that are just saying like, Oh, education, free boot camp. I get a stipend to go there. Okay. I'll, I'll go fantastic because that allows us to cast a wider net for some folks that are in this, in this space. That's just a drop in the bucket. Um, so it's just an important population to be talking about. I think yeah, that's a great point. And I would it. add real quickly to Ryan's articulation, just to say, once we, once we find them, this mass of people out there who, who haven't even considered that this is for them, if we do successfully reach them, admitting them is not enough. <laughs> 
admitting them is not enough. You have to admit them and then support them in order to create real access. And I think this is something that people are missing sometimes. They'll boast their admission rate. How many students did they let in? That's an output measure. We need outcomes measures. What happened to them once they walked through the door? For sure. Yeah, did they did they form that team? Did they find a tribe? You know, did they make successful progress? Yeah, good points. Yeah, I know here in Michigan, you know, we have a we have an entire agency that was created in the last five years called the Michigan Veteran Affairs Agency that's dedicated just to trying to link everyone up to their benefits. And the, one of the things they're trying to do is every returning veteran that comes back to the state, you know, get a hold of them, reach out to them somehow. I know there's a, a friend of mine who has a charity called Vet Life here in Michigan who's trying to do the same thing, making sure that you just get linked up, get face to face with that veteran, and say, hey, did you know? You could go to college right now. Do you want to? Right. So that's amazing. Yeah. Um, so I think for the, for the last uh, portion of the group, we got about five, six minutes to go. And I'd, I'd like to talk a little bit about sort of just how, what's the best way that within we can assist with all this, right? There's roles for, um, government, for the, for the nonprofits that some of you represent to higher education institutions that some of you represent. You know, um, are there other programs? You know, I know we've got Warrior Scholar, which is really premier sort of best in class platinum standard, if you will. Um, but, um, and then there's plenty of others. So maybe Ryan could talk a little bit about that and, um, Maybe um, RJ and Linda could talk a little bit about sort of, you know, are there systemic changes? You know, does the, you know, the GI Bill has changed a number of times. It's pretty amazing. Do you think it needs to change again? Are there specific things maybe that institutions could do? Um, just let's sort of, you know, wrap this up with sort of thoughts about where do we go from here? So, right. So, I mean, I, I guess that you know, we've kind of talked about Warrior Scholar Project uh, at, at a high level. So I'll just give uh, a little bit more granularity on that. So it's, it's academic boot camps in partnership with excellent colleges and universities throughout the country to include um, Syracuse, um, to include Columbia. I think I'd be working with Linda and RJ, regardless of whether or not Warrior Scholar Project was partnered with Syracuse and Columbia, but but it only it only helps, right? Working with institutions that have a, a dedicated arm that are, you know, or, or in that network that are so committed to advancing student veteran outcomes. And so, you know, we, we'll serve about 400 students this year, um, rigorous academic boot camps in humanities, STEM, and business. And look, so much of what we do is throwing down that gauntlet and saying, look, you have what it takes. What I tell students is I've been doing this again for 12, 12 years at this point. I've met thousands of student veterans. I've yet to meet a veteran that doesn't have what it takes to succeed in higher education with the right support. And, you know, you have what it takes. So let's actually unpack what that's like. What does it look like to go through a really rigorous academic environment in humanities, STEM, and or business and entrepreneurship? What type, what's the social and psychological aspects of transition? What are the similarities and differences between military culture and academic culture? And it's not great. It's not accredited. It never will be, um, at least for as long as I have a say in the matter, because the idea is that this is the safe space for you to be able to fail, to ask every question, yeah. right? Be, you know, feel silly so that when you're actually applying your benefits and your the grades actually do count, you're ready to go, right? The, the, the interesting data is that most veterans eventually figure it out, right? The persistence rate for student veterans is higher than, than it is for traditional students. But oftentimes there's that lag period, right? It takes a couple semesters and we want those semesters to be well spent. You know, Eric, you made a fantastic point. Undergrad is about more than just the check in the box. It's not just the degree, right? It's the experience. And one of the things that we try and really work with our, with our, with our folks on that come through the program is, look, embrace college, right? And join this ski club, right? Um, I, I don't know, Michigan, join the squirrel watching club, right? Whatever the, you know, whatever, whatever the odd thing is. Chainsaw right? ice carving. Yeah. <laughs> Chainsaw ice carving. Right. Fantastic. Right. Um, there was a, you know, there's a, frater- a, a metal fraternity, right? A fraternity that's all about metal. Join, join whatever, whatever you want to do, right? These are all the, whatever the thing is, right? Embrace college because that aspect, that's part of your transition, right? It's not just about the academics. So we really try and help uh, folks unpack what 
what that can look like. And that I've used that word of informed consumer of higher education or that phrase many times in this, in this interview, because I think that that's, that's what it's all about. Um, service to school is a, a strong partner organization that we work with. Um, we're, 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 you know, we've worked very closely with them for years. They're focused really, um, specifically on the, on the admission side. So, you know, they have, uh, they're a fantastic service to use for that. The Posse Veterans Program for folks that are looking for um, sustained support throughout their entire, they have a, a slightly different model, but a number of our alumni have found that to be a valuable experience. So those are some of the, the big three. Um, and then joining the local Student Veterans of America chapter, right? Um, you know, getting embedded with the community of other veterans, like-minded veterans, sure. or not like-minded veterans, frankly, um, <laughs> is, is huge. For sure. Yeah, that's, th- those are the ones that are, are, are top of mind for me. Awesome. Really appreciate that. Um, Linda and RJ, as we come into the home stretch, any final thoughts? Um, so it's just some, fi- some final thoughts at Syracuse University. We bring them in, uh, connect early and connect often. Say you belong. You belong here. You're making the community better. Um, there's an identity piece there. So from the very beginning, let them know that because they're shifting their military identity uh, to a college campus identity. Get the leadership involved. Let the leadership know that this is an investment. This investment is a priority. So and really, really continue to put programs in place to educate educate, educate our civilian um, students uh, to bridge that gap, to understand that they to they bring both sides, bring so much and they're better together. And I'll just say quickly, invite everyone to check out veterans.columbia.edu. That's where our center lives. We have free programming for folks trying to find a right fit college, folks who are trying to succeed in college and folks who are trying to transition successfully to civilian employment. We also have a new curriculum helping higher education professionals become more competent around this population. Um, We touch about 40,000 students and higher education professionals a year through our free programming. We believe in free programming. We believe in open access uh, to these resources, and we just need help getting them to the folks who need them. Really, really excited to be here today, and and thank you so much. It's such a pleasure and an honor to to share space with folks who are, are having these conversations, let alone doing the work. Awesome. Appreciate that. And so for, you know, this, uh, this will be coming out as a podcast, but it also goes out as a live radio show where they won't necessarily have the supporting material. So maybe, uh, Linda and, uh, Ryan, if you wanted to give your favorite URL or contact point for folks to, uh, or just a recommendation for Google search terms that will bring you up, um, as we're closing things up, just a way to get in touch with you if they wanted more information. Well, so for Warrior Scholar Project, it's warrior-scholar.org. You can also uh, Google uh, Warrior Scholar Project, and uh, if our you know SEO is any is worth is worth its salt, then it'll it'll lead to our website. Awesome. Um, applications are open, totally free for veterans, um, uh, regardless of what school you're going to go to. Active duty veteran, I encourage everybody to apply. Awesome. And for Syracuse University, it's ivmf.syracuse.org. Also, office uh, you can Google. Um, the Office of Veterans and Military Affairs as well at Syracuse University. Both will bring a wealth of resources for you. Awesome. Well, that has been an excellent and extremely informative program. And I would like to thank our guests again, Ryan Pavel from Warrior Scholar Program, R.J. Jenkins from uh, Columbia University, and Dr. Linda Udo from the Daniello Institute for Veterans and Military Families at Syracuse University. It has been an absolute pleasure having this conversation. I've learned a ton. I hope our guests have as well. And I'm Dr. Eric Fretz signing off for Veterans Radio. We'll catch you next time. I hope you enjoyed today's program. That was Dr. Eric Fretz. He's a professor at the University of Michigan. He was very, very active in the veteran student organizations and in his, in his entrepreneurial programs through the U of M. So thanks, Eric, for that program. I think it was great. A couple of things I wanted to uh, mention to everybody. Next week, of course, is Memorial Day. 
and uh, we're going to be uh, having a special program coming up for Memorial Day, so make sure you stick around. I want to make sure that we thank all of our sponsors, of course, as I mentioned before. We can't do this whole program without them. Uh, starting off with Legal Help for Veterans, uh, Legal Help for Veterans specializes in veteran disability claims. Give them a call at Legal Help at 800-693-4800. Uh, the National Veteran Business Development Council, better known as NVBDC, is the nation's leading third-party authority for certification of veteran-owned businesses. For more information, you can go to their website, that's nvbdc.org, or give them a call at 888-237-8433. Charles S. Kettles, VA Medical Center here in Ann Arbor, Michigan. For more information for them, just go to va.gov slash Healthcare. I want to make sure we also thank our local American Legion Post 46 uh, for their support and also the Vietnam Veterans of America, the Charles S. Kettles Chapter 310. We really appreciate the support from all of these organizations and, of course, from all of you. And, hey, if you would like to support Veterans Radio, you can go to our website. That's veteransradio.net and click on sponsorships. And you can do anything from a dollar to however much that you feel that you can afford to spread the word about our program. I also just left off one of the sponsors. I'm going to get myself in big trouble this week. The Veterans Lending Council. And this you can find on Facebook. If you go to Facebook, you can go to Veterans Lending Council. And what they are doing is putting together a program of of uh, realtors, bankers, and so forth to make sure that everybody understands exactly how uh, the process goes for getting a VA loan and all of the intricacies that are involved with that. So uh, make sure that you check them out. They're all on our, on our website, veteransradio.net. Uh, and since you are listening to the program today, uh, there is one announcement for an upcoming event here in the local Ann Arbor area. And this is going to be our June 12th uh, Flag Day celebration at the local uh, VFW Hall on at 3230 South Wagner Road in Ann Arbor. Again, that's June the 12th. Uh, gates open at 10 o'clock. And the program begins at noon. And it's going to go till dusk. And there's all kinds of things that are going to be going on there for veterans, for families. There's going to be picnics, games, door prizes, and so much, much more. If you have any questions about that, you can call Bob Bull. at His number is 734-664-7878. And then finally, as I say, we know we're at the end of our program, and I wanted to remind all of you that you can leave your comments about Veterans Radio right on our website. Please do that. It helps us figure out what kind of programs that we want to do in the future, uh, make sure that, you know, we're telling the stories that you want us to tell. Um, as I say, we're also uh, looking for support from Patriots to help us keep the, reps, uh, the website and all of our social medias and things running as well. And I think that's about it for today's program. So I want to make sure that you all are all aware that Veterans Radio is a production of Veterans Radio America Corporation. It is a 501c3 nonprofit corporation. So that's, uh, again, thank you very much, Eric, for the program today. And this is Dale Throneberry for Veterans Radio. And for all of you out there, stay safe, be careful. Till next week, you are dismissed. <laughs>